If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. This is The Change Physician, episode 237. Welcome back to The Change Physician. I'm Melissa Cady, the Challenge Doctor, with my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, with our amazing returning and returning again uh, guest, Dr. Corey Fawcett, with yet another book to discuss, um, which actually the title of the book, I think, is a good place to start, and um, it's called The Doctor's Guide to Starting Your Practice Right. However, we were discussing how uh, people interpret practice in different ways. So um, not specifically private practice, but your career or your practice of medicine uh, was where we were going with that. But Kevin, do you want to take it from here? And and Yeah. Okay. All right. So Corey, as Melissa was saying, this is the doctor's guide to starting your practice right. But before we started, you said there was some confusion when you initially released the book. So could you kind of provide some clarity there? So that people know exactly what they're getting into when they're uh, looking into this book. We none of us saw this coming when we when we titled this book "Starting Your Practice Right." Because uh, as I wrote the book and, and as my uh, publishers were working with it, we all used that word as the practice of medicine. So starting your practice right was how you tr- transition from being your final year as a resident and become an attending, and you start practicing medicine. You're no longer under anybody else's wing. The, the buck stops with you now. You are the attending. And, and so I was always working under that impression that this is the practice of medicine, starting your practice right. But then when people, the young people were reading this, that are none of them are going into private practice. They're going into attending as a W-2 employee. Many of them wrote me and says, uh, does this pertain to me? Because I'm not going to start a practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the light bulbs were going off with this. Oh, my goodness. People are confused about the word practice there. Mm-hmm. Many of them were interpreting meaning private practice. And that is not what the book is about. The book is about teaching you how to start practicing medicine on your own. So you're no longer under a chief resident or under an attending. Uh, you are the guy you are now practicing medicine. And this book will get you the right start. So um, when you're, you kind of think about who the ideal reader is, when you were writing this book, who was the person, like, who did you envision reading this book? Like, you know, I kind of think about books as being a conversation. And as you're writing one, you were having a conversation with this ideal person that you're visiting. So uh, who was who the, the person that you saw while you were reading this? Like the, the person I saw just began their first day of their final year of training. Okay. You're the chief resident, or this is your last uh, year of your fellowship or, or wherever your training is coming to an end. And this is the year that you begin looking for your job. You, you mm-hmm. begin looking for, okay, where am I going to be when I finally am, am grown up and, and now I'm a doctor, you know? Uh, so that person, uh, I wanted them to read this book before they started their search for what job they want because so many of these guys were making mistakes and they didn't even know they were making those mistakes because no one teaches us anything about going out in the real world. 
So I left, I knew how to take out an appendix, but I didn't know how to get a contract or negotiate a contract with, for my next job. I didn't know how to find a job. You know, nobody talked about any of that stuff. I, they didn't talk about what to do with your student loans. They, there was no talk about that. They taught me how to be a doctor and take care of a patient. And this book fills in those missing pieces to help you with that transition. And so I wanted uh, that as my specific audience. There is a secondary audience, and that's the person who went out without help, found their first job. Two years later, they are unhappy, and they are ready to go find a better one. And before they start that search, read this book. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you missed it the first time around, and now you're out trying to buy, get it, get another one. Uh, and let's see if we can do it better the second time around, because it is very expensive. I, uh, there's a section here where I took a friend of mine who left a job after a few years, uh, and went somewhere else. And he did it because of a family change, uh, and they needed to move. Um, and, we actually cataloged what it cost him to leave one practice and go to another. And it was $175,000. So if you pick the wrong job the first time, that's a $175,000 mistake just in costs. And that's not the anguish of having to go hunt for another job uh, for your kids who just made new friends, having to get more new friends. Uh, you were just making friends in this town and now you got to start all over again. Um, it, it doesn't even count those things. It, that was just money out of his pocket uh, to change jobs. And something like 40, 50% of all doctors leave that first job just in a few years. Mm -hmm. And if we can cut that down, um, we can make a huge impact on the finances of people in medicine because they're not taking this huge hit and having to start all over again. Yeah. And they're often unhappy. I'd yeah. rather you be happy. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you speak of the things that we don't learn in medicine or in our training and they just, we're going through the, the ritual of understanding how to be a doctor and take care of patients. <clears throat> and I think um, we naturally are inclined to just focus on the patients and doing the work and we're used to doing that. But I've, I, I'm curious your, your response. I know this is discussed in, in different ways in the, especially in the earlier chapters is, how, uh, you know, the, people assume, oh, you go into medicine, you like help people, but they don't help you like dissect down. What is it about your life and your lifestyle and your work? <clears throat> what is it you like? What is it you don't like? What are your priorities? Like that inner journey, as they say, is sometimes the hardest. What are, what are your first thoughts just with those kind of comments? I think uh, you hit the, the nail on the head right there. Um, that's the reason this book got written. Because most of the residents, as they come to the end, their thought process goes kind of like this. Okay, now I'm ready to start being a doctor. And all I need to do is find a place to work, uh, do my thing and collect my check. And that's about all the farther they think about it. <laughs> and so then they go looking out and they kind of just pick the highest bidder. Uh, those guys are offering me a lot of money and a big sign-on bonus. I'll take them. And then they just go. The problem is if they haven't sorted out what they really want to do with their life and what they really want their practice of medicine to look like, there are high likelihood they're going to be 
unhappy. Let's take a couple of easy examples. Um, do you want to be in a small town or a big city? <clears throat> that one decision cuts out a huge number of places that you would consider interviewing at, no matter how much they're paying you. If you are a city guy, why would you ever look at this little country practice that was offering a really high pay? Uh, you're going to move there. You're going to be unhappy. They don't have a Nordstrom's. There's no Macy's. Uh, you you got to go half hour to find a good uh, theater. Uh, and, and you're just unhappy. Okay. That's a, a good one to know. Are you a city guy or a country girl? You know, because that one, you know, I, I know a family whose wife left and when she left, she left a note on the kitchen table that said, I just can't live in a town where a four wheel drive tractor pole is a big event. <laughs> you know, if, if she should have easily been able to figure that out before they took this job. You know, yeah. and, and I list a whole chapter there of the things that you want to consider before you make the move. Uh, another one might be, do you want to be an academic doctor or do you want to be in bread and butter uh, clinical medicine? Uh, if you want to publish papers, you really need to be looking at places where you're going to be at a tertiary care facility, you know, a big medical school or something like that. Um, but I, I hated that kind of stuff. I didn't like writing papers. It's amazing that I ever wrote a book. I, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I mean, you said something, would you ever write a book? I would have said, absolutely no way. And yeah. yet I've written a bunch of them, but I didn't like that, that process. So I knew when I was looking to not look at university places, I didn't want to have to publish or perish. Uh, I didn't want to be in that environment. But what goes along with that environment is not just the publish and perish kind of things. It's what kind of patients you're going to see. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a big city, big university, let's say me as a general surgeon, I go to a big city like that, big university. What am I going to be doing? There's a very good chance that my niche is going to be narrowed right down to something like liver surgery. And that's all I get to do. Pancreas surgery colon surgery, you know, it, it will get very narrow and you will become super good at this very small thing. But if I go into a small town, I'm going to get to do all different aspects of general surgery. And to me, that was a lot more appealing. I, I was, I'm kind of a Renaissance guy. I like to do lots of different things. And so the opportunity to do lots of different things with my practice was important to me. So if I picked a spot at some university and they wanted me to be the gallbladder specialist, but I wanted to do some other stuff. I was going to be unhappy with that. And so other things to consider, for instance, is what about your hobbies? Do you love to snow ski? <laughs> then why not pick a practice that is close to the slopes? Why have to hop in an airplane every time you want to go snow ski if you love to snow ski? Do you love surfing? Don't go to Colorado and interview with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pick the place. There's lots of places on the coast where you could have a job and you could go surfing. 
Do you want to be close to your family? How important is it for your kids to grow up closely knowing their grandparents? If that doesn't matter, you can live in another country and see them every few years. But if it's important to you, so when, when you take a bunch of these things, and I sat down and figured those out, I live in Southern Oregon. My family is in Southern Oregon. I grew up there. My grandmother, my dad, and me all went to the same high school. Um, my wife's family is all in Northern Oregon. So when we sat down, one of the things we said was we wanted to be close to family, and that was important to us. So the only place that we looked for a job was between those two towns on Interstate 5, between Portland and Medford on Interstate 5. That's where I needed to find a job. So I got a recruiter. I didn't know at the time you don't need a recruiter, but I, <laughs> I, I got a recruiter involved and the recruiter couldn't find anything. He called me one day and he says, I got this really great job in Idaho. And I said, Idaho, is that between Portland and Medford on Interstate 5? <laughs> he says, well, no. I said, well, then why are you calling me about it? He said, because I can't find anything where you want to go. So you're going to have to broaden your horizon. There's nothing there. Well, it doesn't matter if there's nothing there right now. If that's where I really wanted to be, why would I take a job in Idaho? And four years from now, I end up moving back to this area anyway. It cost me that $175,000 extra to move again. Why didn't I get this right the first time? Yeah. So I made cold calls to every single general surgeon. I'm a general surgeon, for those that don't know. Every single general surgeon between Portland and Medford, I contacted. I found six of them who were looking for a new partner. The recruiter didn't know about any of those people. So I got in a car and I just drove down and I met all those people. I ended up with my dream job in between Medford and Portland on Interstate 5. And I practiced there for 20 years until I was ready to, to let go. Mm -hmm. But don't compromise. If you know what you want and you take the time to figure that out, the, there are great odds that you will see it during your interview process and you're going to pick your dream job right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, you mentioned about figuring out, oh, where do you want to live? And all these questions. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, for a lot of people, they still don't know. Like they're, they're, they're not, like you said, they're not going beyond, I'm going to take the best paying job. Like I, it's like, always feels like the next question is, well, where do you want to live? And then why? to like dig in to understand, well, why is it you want to be in a small town or why is it you want to be in a large city for it to really like make sense to you to understand yourself, to know what it is you really want. If, if that makes sense, like yeah, you can't I, just I, say, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be in a big city. Yeah, you never I'll give you an example of that it happened when I was a, a, a junior resident and, and my chief resident was talking about um, and we were in a fairly small town and he said he couldn't wait to get out of this town and get back to Los Angeles where he grew up because he needed to be in the, there was just nothing to do here. And I said, well, getting to your point, you know, what is it he's seeking? I said, well, well, what do you mean? Like, well, give me an example. What can you do there that you can't do here? That's important to you. He said, well, like going to the movies, you know, in Los Angeles, there's probably, you know, a thousand, you know, I don't know how many whole hundreds of places that we can go to the movies. 
And here in this town, there's only five. So I said, okay, I get you. How many movies did you go to last month? And he said, well, none. I said, well, you can do that right here. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, he, he had this dream, this vision that he needed to be there because of this stuff. But even when he had that opportunity where he was at, he didn't do it. Yeah. You know, so sometimes we think we want a certain thing and to, to really think through it, exactly why did you say this answer may change your answer. Oh, yeah. Maybe an ideal, maybe that's what your parents always said was the right thing to do. And you're just kind of following that. You didn't really realize you were doing that until you really dig into it. Why do I want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I think those are important questions. Um, Kevin, sorry, I usurped your questions. My questions. Well, I, I just want to bring up two. The first thing, I absolutely love the fact of um, the, the questions right now focusing on things such as what's super important to you not thinking about the money, the monetary component. Because I think what becomes very easy when someone's seeking a new job to get uh, tunnel vision just because of an offer that's placed out. So being able to focus on, you know, what, I, and I, you can regularly frame those to two things is the hobbies and your family. I just love that idea. Because if you do that, that really sets you up for a much better place to be. The other thing that I really wanted to kind of call question was the recruiting thing. And as you were talking about your recruiter and how you had these very specific criteria and he's like, but I have this great job in Idaho. It made me want to just kind of like, you got to remember who the recruiter actually works for. And were you paying the recruiter or was this one of your typical recruiters who's getting paid the recruiting fee no, by finding the position? Usually they get paid by the person who's looking to hire somebody and they get big yeah. bucks. Yeah. They're not really interested in finding you a great job for you. They just want to get you in something because then mm -hmm. they get paid. Yeah. And they're usually not going to help you get what you want yeah. um, because you can usually find it. And most of the good jobs aren't even going through a recruiter. Um, you know, a lot of places, if they need a recruiter, maybe you don't <laughs> want to be there. Uh, and some of, you know, there, there was one section in the book I talked about pay. And that is the last thing that you want to look at because it doesn't matter. No matter where you work as a physician, you're going to make a good income. You're going to be in the top 5%. It really doesn't matter if you make 250 or 500, uh, 5,000, 500,000 or 250,000. Um, you're going to do really good with both of those if you get the right start and you, and you set up things correctly. But one of the problems when you only look at the money is sometimes the reason they're offering you a really high income is because they can't get anybody to come work here. This is a crappy place to work. So in order to get somebody, we got to offer a lot of money. And I, I had a friend who had that experience. Uh, he always kind of wanted to live in the, the New England area. And, and he got this job offer for a huge amount of money. And he asked them a few questions about the place. And when he moved there, it was not what they portrayed. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, he asked, well, why didn't you tell me this? He said, well, cause you'd have never come if I'd have told you that stuff. Uh, and he, they were just drawing somebody in with a high salary. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems with that is they can hook you. Mm -hmm. And if they hook you, you're stuck. How do they hook you? They do something like 
they'll give you a forgivable loan. Mm -hmm. So let's say they offered you a very enticing $250,000 forgivable loan, forgivable $50,000 a year for five years. And you get there and you find out that you were brought there under false pretenses. Um, there was some stuff they didn't mention. And now you find out about it, but you got the 250 and you spent it. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you left, you don't have the money to give back to them and you're in trouble. You can't leave. They got you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you, if you stay there long enough, you could get ingrained into the area and then your spouse got, you know, involved in stuff and now nobody wants to move, uh, and you're stuck in a job you don't like all because you got enticed by a big number that they were offering. And if somebody is offering you a big number that seems out of place, it's like, wow, that's a really nice offer. No one else is offering that kind of offer. You got to kick back and say, now, why would they be offering that much money when no one else does? Because mm-hmm. there's something you don't know uh, about what's going on here. And there's some reason they need to give you that kind of that kind of offer. So the money is the last thing you should be looking at because you'll have enough money. Don't don't kid yourself that if they pay you an extra 50,000, somehow that's going to make your life so much better. Your life's going to be good uh, with anything they pay you at that level uh, of pay that a physician gets, but you can get blinded by seeing the price and miss some things. Some examples, uh, I, I know of a guy who came into town to be recruited as an orthopedic surgeon And he asked, is there any other hip surgeon in town? And they told him, no. Mm. He came to town and ran into the other hip surgeon in town who was a competitor of these people. They were trying to bring somebody in to put that other guy out of business and get rid of Mm. him. And no one brought that up. And a simple little Google check of orthopedic surgeons in that town would have told him that there's this guy there doing hips. Uh, and, and so if he would have taken that job, he would have one got a job from somebody who lied when they were hiring him. That's a, that's a bad sign. Uh, and two, there's going to be a lot of people that don't like him from day one, Mm -hmm. because he came into town to put that other guy out of business and everybody knows that. And so things like that are happening. And when you do an interview, it's a very quick dating process. Uh, you don't get a whole lot of time and they're on their best behavior. <laughs> so no matter how good you think it is, you're not going to know for sure until you work there for a few months uh, what things are really like. Um, you, know, you just think about it to all your first dates. Um, people are different on the first date than on the date six months later. Uh, <clears throat> so be careful about those things as you meet these people. And if you know what you're looking for, you'll have an easy time finding it. Mm-hmm. You'll see it when it runs across you. Yeah. Due diligence. I mean, it doesn't take a lot. I mean, nowadays there's access to a lot of things that you should be able to, if you know what you want and you know what you don't want, <laughs> you can at least do a little bit of uh, um, hunting in the area with that kind of scenario. You know, uh, you said something we should point out a moment and you know what you don't want. You got to know that too. 
not just the things you want, but the things you don't want, because those can be used very well for you when it comes time to negotiate your contract. Mm -hmm. Because if you know there's a few things you don't even want those things anyway, and they're saying, well, we, we need to toss that out or something, and you know oh, you didn't want that anyway, that's a really good one to give them. So it looks like you're giving them stuff, but you didn't want that anyway. <laughs> and yeah. So you, if there are things like that, that you know, that are typically part of your specialty, but you didn't really want to do them. Um, if they're going to emphasize those things and they really want you to do that stuff, that's going to be tough for you. Um, but if you don't want to do it and it was easy to say, oh, yeah, there's a guy there already doing those, I'd let them do all. And so he could be extra good at that, you know, and yeah. we could specialize. Yeah. You made me just think of like the, you know, it's like the typical human thing. Remember the negative things easier, but some of the most powerful lessons seem to be the things that um, go wrong or you don't like, and you may not have realized that until those things went wrong. Um, like trusting a partner uh, I'm talking about like a business partner and they, you know, basically swindle, they, they lie to you. They take money. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you realize you make mistakes about, uh, especially you're talking about the person that's not just coming out of residency, but, you know, tried it on their own, realized they made mistakes. So there's a lot of things they know they don't want or don't like, but even our personal relationships, like along life, you just learn about the things you don't like. And sometimes those are incredibly powerful um, to kind of find your niche. Yeah. that And that's important um, because some things, uh, you know, I, I had a problem, for example, I went into a town doing locums. I did locums for the last three years of my career, uh, helping out in small towns that just had one surgeon to give them a break. I went into town and they called me one day to do this um, amputation on a Saturday. Uh, they said they talked to the orthopedic guy. He wouldn't do it. Would I take care of it? And so I said, sure. And I took care of the amputation. Monday morning, it was really bad because there was a place where you had uh, the, the blanket um, privileges, you know, one box, general surgeon privileges. Mm -hmm. At that hospital, amputations isn't part of general surgery privileges. <laughs> so according to them, I didn't have privileges to take off that man's leg. And that happened because the surgeon I was covering for never does amputations. Mm. It was just something he doesn't like. He doesn't do it. There was an orthopedic guy in town that does it. And so the, the attitude of that town was, okay, the ortho guys do those. The general mm. surgeons don't. And when I did it that day, and I had done lots of them, we did that. The general surgeons do them, not ortho at where I was. And it caused trouble. And mm -hmm. so there are a thing, a lot of things like that within your specialty that he doesn't want to do those. And, and I didn't know it raised trouble if I did one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Learn in hindsight, <laughs> you realize you could have, uh, I don't know, I guess you'd have to check and get approval right beforehand, or they just say no. I, another example I, I know is a, is a guy who wanted to do vascular surgeon. He was general surgery trained. He loved vascular surgery. So he was going to go to a smaller town where he could do some vascular surgery. There was no other vascular surgeons in town and they didn't have any of the equipment that mm. was needed for doing vascular surgery. And so here's something he really wants to do, but he found himself at a place where it wasn't possible to do it, mm -hmm. but they told him, yeah, if you want to do that, you know, you should be able to do it. Uh, but when it came down to it, 
um, they didn't back him up with everything that it would take. They realized, oh, no, it's going to take too much for us to do that. You know, we, we just aren't going to have the facilities to do that. So we can't. And so he didn't get to do the thing he really wanted to do in his practice. Hmm. Yeah, lots of questions you have to figure out before accepting those things. And you've got to just take the time to figure it out. It, it, it's not that hard to sit down with a piece of paper and a list and say, well, what would I like my practice to look like uh, when I do this? And, and what do I want to do? What do I don't want to do? Uh, it, it, where do I want to live? Uh, is there some hobby I want to be uh, involved with? What about my spouse's job? Mm-hmm. I yeah. know of a doctor who married a spouse from another country. She was an attorney in his country. He is a doctor in this country. She can't practice law in this country, and he can't practice medicine in that country. (laughs) They're married now, and they cannot go someplace together and both work. Hmm. Um, And so thinking about what your spouse needs is also important. If your spouse is an oceanographer, you should be looking for a place on the beach somewhere so your spouse can do their thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, any questions on the other uh, later chapters? No, it was just bringing back lots of memories for me. So <laughs> <laughs> reliving the past, reliving the past. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, my wife is a physician. And so it was interesting and I had, it was like, I had the easy decision when I came out of fellowship. Cause it was like the Navy said, you're going to go here. Okay. But um, yeah, for my wife's then when the was, Navy ended, you had the same decision. We had the same decision. And, um, and a lot of the stuff came through, like, I, you know, the, the key things was obviously, you know, family location was a big one. Um, you know, there's a general feeling, are you a West Coast person, an East Coast person, or a Midwest person? They have different feels around the country, having lived in different areas. Um, yeah, so those, those are, those are huge, huge, huge considerations. But I'm going to just imagine, so if someone's read your book, and they've actually answered the important questions that need to be answered before you even start talking about money, i.e., what are your hobbies, where your family's at, what's the natural environment that you want, but now comes to that, that crucial part is negotiating your contract. And what do you mention or what are some of the takeaways that you would that you think are really, really important for somebody who's starting out? Well, the contract negotiation. I think the contracts are important. And I use one entire chapter just on contracting and, and what you need to do. Um, but here's the thing that you need to keep in mind. Okay. Who wrote that contract? It was an attorney. The attorney works for the other guy. So guess whose favor the contract's going to be in, right? It's going to be in their favor because their attorney wrote it. Let's say you're getting a job for $250,000 a year. And you're going to practice medicine for 30 years. That contract's worth $7.5 million, not counting benefits and other things that are going to happen and raises. This is a very big deal. They had an attorney, you should have an attorney. So when you get the contract, take it to an attorney who has a chance to look at it also to tell you what pitfalls might be in this contract. And so too many of us just trust that the other people are are looking out for my best interest. 
I mean, we trained our whole time to be that person who looks out for somebody's best interest. Mm -hmm. We're trying to help these people, right? And, and, and we project that to everyone else. They're going to look after my best interest. But that's not the case. If you're going to go to work for some big corporation, they're looking after their best interest. That corporation needs to make money um, and, and, and they're setting things up to do that. So be sure that you don't skip the step of having an attorney look at it as well. <coughs> um, most residents want to save the cost. But if you paid 500 bucks to an attorney to look at a $7 million contract, was that a reasonable cost? 500 bucks may seem like a lot to you, but in the long run, that was a very important $500. So, so one of the most important things to remember about the contracting is to get somebody to look at it who knows more than you do about doctor contracts. There are companies that will review your contracts. Uh, that's all they do is they help doctors uh, negotiate contracts. Yeah. One of the important things to keep in mind about your contract is there's probably, let's say, 50 different provisions in the contract, okay? Some of them are important to you, some of them are not. Some of them are important to them, and some of them are not. They have some things in there that they could throw out, and it would be okay. Just like we mentioned earlier, if you got something you can throw out that you don't even care about, but they don't know that, it looks like you gave in, you know? And there's some of that on, on both sides in the contract. So you need to kind of be aware of that. And remember, there may be something in the contract that's super important to them uh, and they can't budge on it. So for example, let's say you wanted more pay. Well, the guy who's negotiating from their side may be capped. I can't give you more pay no matter what we do. Well, you can get the effect of having more pay by adding some benefit. Well, then give me two more weeks of vacation. That effectively is the same as getting a raise. Mm -hmm. uh, give me, uh, you know, a, a match on my retirement plan. Or give me, you know, um, more CME time or more CME money. Or, and there's some things that, that they might not consider important to them uh, that you could get that would give you the same effect as the thing you wanted that they can't budge on, or, well, of course they can, but they won't budge on because somebody has told them, this is the way we do it with all doc. All of the doctors have this in their contract. And um, if you're aware of what pieces in there you could boost in your benefit, you can get around some of these things. Uh, we, we had that in, in a contract I had uh, one of the locum spots uh, where we agreed to something uh, verbally and they said, we'll write it up and they wrote it up. And then he came back to me and said, our attorneys say, we're not allowed to do that. And so I said, okay, so how do you find a way to honor what you told me and, and, and have it. So the attorney says, that's how we could do it. And they found a workaround. They found a way to essentially give me the same thing they said they would give me, but they had to call it something else and, and work it in a different way because legally you can't do it this way. We have to do it this other way. And so we ended up coming up with a different way, but had to, to my end, the same effect. 
And so don't, don't get, you know, rock hard at some, some spot you just have to have uh, without thinking that there might be a workaround that can give you the why, why did you think you had to have that? Uh, and could you get that in another way? Uh, so keep that in mind as you think about your contracting. Um, actually, if you sign up to get my blog, you actually get a white paper download of all of the tips on contracting from that chapter. Nice. It was just a, a that was one of the giveaways I had way back when I was starting uh, my blog. And I know it's still there. It's, it was never changed. So you get that <laughs> for free without even buying the book. Yeah. Uh, and you get the contracting. But the, the contracting is pretty easy because they're going to hand you an already done thing that you just are going to tweak a little. And if you can't get what you're looking for, you can always go somewhere else. Um, they're not the only good place you could have worked at. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> so that, so that I think that it needs to be emphasized because I think too often people, again, get tunnel vision and they think I have to work it here with this place. This is the only thing. And I have to sign this contract because this is my dream job. And when you've already decided something's your dream job before you've actually started working there, that actually puts you in a really bad position because now you're going to take whatever they say. And there's a good chance it's not your dream job or <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. it's. Um, you don't know enough to know it's your dream job. Yeah. You only know enough to say that you suspect that could mm -hmm. be your dream job, yeah. uh, but you know you're, it's too short of a, a of a, a dating period uh, that you get to decide um, wh what you're going to do. And, and, and this so, reminds me a little bit about our prior discussions about um, this is going to sound kind of kooky, but timeshares, because one of the 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 thing that if you guys haven't seen the timeshare go back and read the timeshare when we talk about the doctor's guide to loving your timeshare because one of the things where you we were mentioning that people were very upset with having a timeshare was the fact that they had these very rigid parameters and it's like once you kind of open up those parameters you say what are your must haves that you that you need and then really focusing on those with and then letting your parameters out all of a sudden all these other options came up Mm -hmm. And I think it, this implies in a very similar way, because if you go, these are my hobbies that I absolutely love and I want to incorporate on a, on a consistent basis in my life. This is the type of geographic location that I love and I want to be in, whether that's a city, mountains, you know, whatever, and or the family component about how do I have access to my family? And then I had a lot of that from there. You are no longer confined to this one, you know it has to be this hospital in this location. It's like, well, wait a second, actually, there's most places have a nice geographic locale. So um, I, I, I think we're just coming back to that fundamental issue of knowing it, it. If you know what you want, like those core pieces that really don't have anything to do with money per se, and then being able to recognize or medicine, what, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And then being able to relax everything else a little bit with a little bit more flexibility and creativity um, you're setting yourself up in a much better way. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you spoke earlier about, you know, where people can find, um, you know, the information about contracts. Do you mind? Um, cause you have a lot of things going on with all the books that you have. And, um, as far as, uh, the financial success, um, do you mind just giving where people can find you or where you'd like to direct people uh, and show yeah. your book? Find, oh well yeah the book looks like this <laughs> uh the um i'm at uh, financialsuccessmd.com 
and you can get everything there. And, and if you just go to the blog, you know, all those windows pop up saying, Hey, join the blog. If you just join the blog, then it'll send you, you know, that, that particular um, thing. There's a lot of resources there uh, on the blog uh, that are free, especially good for residents that they like free stuff. Uh, I, I remember one guy said this book um, at the time was on Kindle was doing the special and it was like two ninety nine, right? And somebody made the comment was, well, why can't you just give it to the guy? I mean, he's a resident. And I said, well, if you couldn't pick up a book that will change your life that costs less than a hamburger, um, something is amiss here. <laughs> yes. um, and, and I didn't have the ability to tell Amazon, you know, what to do. They just keep putting the prices wherever they want, whenever they want to do it. Just sure. kind of the way they, they work. Yeah. But you know, interesting, you, you talk about after you get the job, though, there's some things that I think are really important about this book that we haven't even talked about yet. And that's setting your life up on the right trajectory. Okay. Um, one of the examples I gave early in, in the introduction, I think it was, is if you get the wrong start and you're off by just five degrees, mm -hmm. by the end of the runway, you're going to take off in an airplane. By the end of the runway, you're just off course by less than the length of your wing, right? No big deal. But by the time you fly from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., you will be off course by 200 miles and you will miss your target by a long way. Mm -hmm. So getting the right start financially and getting yourself set up to succeed from the beginning can make or break your life as a doctor. Mm -hmm. The reason this book, actually, the, the, that, that straw that broke the camel's back that made me say, I got to write this book, was when I sat down and talked to uh, a lady doc who was making $450,000 a year and she had to moonlight in order to pay her bills. She could not get by on $450,000 a year. And the reason she couldn't get by is because when she started her practice of medicine right out, out of the gate, she took on some things that made it impossible for her to live a good life on $450,000. Mm -hmm. And one of those things was she bought a great big ranch. Oh, geez. Okay. So she's got this hundreds of acre ranch that they're trying to support and she couldn't support it off of $450,000 and all the other stuff she needed. So I, I go through a section on how to get the right start financially, because this is like winning the lottery. You go from a resident income and a resident work hours to an attending income and an attending work hours. And it's like you won the lottery. You have this huge jump in pay and no one tells you what to do about that. Mm -hmm. So if you take this huge jump in pay and you go out and you buy a doctor house and you get two new doctor cars and you got a boat in the dock at the doctor house and you get all the furniture in there and then you go on these lavish vacations, all of a sudden you find you've created a lifestyle you can't sustain on a doctor's income. Mm -hmm. And if you put yourself into that position, you are destined to be unhappy for a long time. And you don't need to do that because you're going to make a lot of money 
And if you start off right and don't make those mistakes, and, and one of the biggest mistakes is don't buy a house. When you first go to this new job, don't buy a house. We already talked about, you're not sure you're going to stay here because you had such a short dating period. You think this is going to be a good fit for you, but you're not going to know that for six to 12 months. And when those six to 12 months happen and you realize this was a bad fit, it is so nice to just give a 30 day notice, turn in your keys and go somewhere else. If you own a house now, and in those six months, the house market dropped like it did just recently. And when it drops, it drops suddenly. All of a sudden, poof, the housing market goes down. Um, if it's like that, and now you need to leave, you're going to lose a lot of money. So in general, when you buy a house, you got to be able to stay there for five years in order to, on average, make out good financially. Yeah. If you're going to be there less than, this is why residents should never buy a house. Because the odds are not with you that you're going to come out good in the deal when it comes time to sell, because you will have to sell at a very particular time. You don't get to pick when the market's right, let's sell the house. No, you pick to sell the house because my residency just ended. Now I got to go. When I ended my residency, I was renting an apartment. I turned in the keys and left. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to worry about selling a house or getting it spruced up and ready to sell or fix up the fence so that you know it looks good or paint it or, or all those things that go along with it. So if you first move there and you're not positive yet, you're going to stay, rent something until you know that you really are going to stay here. And now when you know you're going to stay, you're familiar with the town. You know what part of town you'd like to live in. Mm -hmm. You're not forced to buy a house quickly. Like when you were first moving there, oh, I'm going to be starting on July 1st. I need the house by then. I need to buy a house right now. You have to buy only from the inventory that's available right now. If you wait and you're renting a house and now you say, okay, I'm going to stay here. We're going to, we'd like to live over in that neighborhood. Then you can tell a realtor, can you find me? This is what I want in a house. Find it to me in that area. Let me know when one comes up. And you know, four months from now, that house comes up and you can buy the house at your leisure and, and make that change uh, fit into your life instead of cram it into a date that you start work. It's so much nicer to buy a house under those circumstances. And it's so much nicer if you made a mistake and picked the wrong job to leave if you can just turn the keys in and leave. Uh, so, and in America, it is so hard, and I should say in the United States, it is so hard to not buy a house because everybody is telling you, you got to buy a house. You got to own a house, you know, successful people own a house. All your partners own a house. All the other doctors own a house. And it's so much push for you to own a house. And I want to own a house. Um, if you can hold back from that one thing, that will change your life. Mm -hmm. Because while you've not sunk a bunch of money in the down payment and you've got this house hanging on you, you can take care of those other things financially you need to do, like making sure you've got life insurance and disability insurance, and you get money start funding in, into your retirement plan, and you get all those things in place, and then you can see how much money do I now have left that I could buy a house with. If you do it the other way around, and you buy that nice house first, then you say, well, I need to put money in my retirement plan, but I, I can't afford afford it because I got this house payment I got to make. And you're going to be like the lady making $450,000 and she can't make ends meet without moonlighting because she stuck herself into a bad spot. 
So get those other pieces in place first. And then when you know for sure you're going to stay, then go buy your house. Yeah. Life will be a lot happier. Yeah. And if you're not single, you really need to talk ahead of time about expectations and the logic, like what you just said, um, before you're in the emotional aspect of it. I, I will say for two years, I lived in a 600 square foot apartment and I had so much more flexibility, so much more freedom and the amount of headaches you don't have to worry about repairing anything. <laughs> um, there's a lot of beauty to keeping your life simple for a little while until you really figure out what you want. Um, I couldn't agree more. It's so much simpler to be a, a renter than an owner of a house. Uh, and, and in that transition period, that is a great place to cut those things off the table. Because mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about doing those things while you're trying to establish yourself as a, as a good doctor, yeah. while you're trying to get your practice going. If you were going to go into uh, joining them two years or so down the road, you might be needing to fork out some money to buy into the practice. And if you just spent all of the money you would have bought in the practice by putting a down payment on a big house, then you don't get to buy into the practice. I mean, there's a lot of snowball effects that buying a big house right away create and if you back that off and take that completely off the plate you have great flexibility and then when you go to buy the house you're going to get a better one mm -hmm. than what you would have ended up with by doing it in a hurry as a resident from somewhere else trying to buy a house in another state um you know that's not a pleasant way to even go about buying a house yeah, yeah. <laughs> If you just lived across town and you've been renting and now you're ready to buy, that's a really nice and easy way to buy a house. <laughs> you're not time pressured. You, yeah. you know, you know what part of town you want to live in. Your whole family can go by and look at the house uh, and see it. It's so much nicer uh, yeah. in that setting. Yeah, it's enough stress just to move your things. So why not make everything else a little bit easier? Moving is one of the major life stressors, mm -hmm. you know, they, they talk about, and I'm sure you got to do that during your psych rotation, uh, talk about the effects that major life stressors have on your life. And if you pile several of them on at the same time, that that's devastating to people and moving is one of them. Changing jobs is another one and buying a house is another one. I mean, if you just pile them on, uh, you can get yourself into a very stressful position uh, and, and, and this should be a time when things are like going great. It's like, wow, how great my life is now. I can come home for lunch now. You know, that was when I first started, that was the thing I noticed. Uh, I, I didn't see my wife much when I was a resident. We, we was really busy where I was at and it was before that, you know, work restriction hours. And I, I worked a lot of hours. We got home. I got to, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with her. And then as things got busier, then it was breakfast and dinner. And then pretty soon I was missing dinner. And then pretty soon I was missing breakfast. <laughs> you know, as your life gets busier as, as a doctor, if you don't be careful about how busy you let it get, it can get out of hand. And that was, I loved having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I didn't like it when I couldn't do any of them. I, I actually got to a point where I was too busy and had to back off my life. Yeah. And that's another section in the book is to talk about what kind of lifestyle you want as a doctor. Um, 
if you put your family first and put them in the schedule, life will be better than if you give them the leftovers, if there's any time <laughs> left over after I've done all the things I'm supposed to do as a doctor. So one of the things I did, uh, I made my, cause I, you know, you know, I, I have timeshares. And so in order to use timeshares effectively, you want to be doing those ahead of time. So you're picking great things out of the pool. You don't want to be doing them last minute. You're trying to, to uh, pick what you want ahead of time. And so I would book my vacation schedule for next year before the call schedule got made. Mm -hmm. And when it came time for everybody to say, okay, we're getting ready to make the call schedule for next year. And we, we did the weekends a year at a time before we make the next, then I would just turn in a slip of paper. Oh, here are the weeks I'm gone. I'm available any of the other times. And so I got my vacations first and then I was on call in the empty spaces. The other guys who would just take the call that comes out and then try and work their vacations in, they didn't have as good a time. Um, <laughs> that, that it was not, uh, it, it, it works out a whole lot better if you'll put your family first and get them in the schedule and then put your work around that. And you can do that even as an employed physician. There are ways that you can do that. Yeah. Well, that just kind of pulls it full circle and you got to know what's important to you and and prioritize that ahead of everything else that you think should be coming in front because we're so used to that, uh, especially in our training. Um, I know there's a lot of things in the book that people should go um, read more in detail, um, like just planning for the future and retirement. Those are very important things I find. I, I talk to upcoming medical students and whatnot to really think about in their 20s to start initiating these habits and patterns. Um, and so I think uh, that's super valuable, not just some of the things we talked about today, but um, I'm really glad you put the book together because uh, I think we do make very costly mistakes in our lives. And if you can avoid that, that's incredibly valuable to a lot of people. Yeah. But. You can either learn by making your own mistakes or mm -hmm. you can learn by my mistakes, you know, or someone <laughs> right. else's mistakes. You don't, there's no point in you having to make them all yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. Kevin, any last questions? No, no. Cover it. I, yeah. No, I was, it was just, there was a couple points that I was like, oh yeah, that was, I totally remember that. Speaking of somebody who made many of these mistakes that we talked about not doing, um, <laughs> And then the, the one thing I will add, though, is, is that ideal about vacationing, because we oftentimes will talk about the transition from residency into an attending hood. And I think one of the we one of the key things that you can take from residency into your first year and more of practice. I think most of us probably I, I we scheduled our vacation day one of the academic year. Because I remember when I was either an intern or my first year in my anesthesia residency. They're like, you should prioritize your vacation because if it gets to the end of the year and we can't, and you can't cover it, you're going to lose your vacation. And I think that's all I heard. So my wife and I literally <laughs> the first day we would get Got our mine schedules in. and yeah, we mine. always had them. And it was, and just like you're saying with your, with your partners, right. When the end of the year, you know, and they're all, oh, we got to juggle this stuff. We will always have people at the end. Can you cover me? I'm like, no, I made this plan a year ago. And, um, and what I like about that, that prioritizing thing is the, is even in, when you're starting your practice, I think that as easy as it attending to get so sucked into what you're doing, you forget to prioritize your vacation and family and you're trying to do that scrap thing versus if you know, hey, I have roughly this amount of a vacation in that this year, we're going to plan this stuff out. It's already set in stone. And so those first year, first couple of years when you're kind of stumbling around and getting your feet 
really wet and probably super, super dirty, you know, you have these things coming up and then you don't have to stress about those later on. I think uh, the point about you made about keeping minimizing the major stressors in your life when you're already in periods of major stress is really profound. And I think starting a new, new practice, when you're starting the practice of medicine, that is a major stressor. So minimize them, get the book. It's $10 as a Kindle copy and it's $20 as a paper copy, which like, as you were saying, Corey, when you're looking at $6 million or $7 million or $8 million or $5 million, whatever your, whatever your, your background specialty is, this is a very, very low investment in, to get your thought process going on where they need to be so you can start your practice off right. So great book and always great to have you back. Oh, thank you. It was always fun to talk with you guys. <laughs> Kevin, you want to take us out? Sure. Well, this is the Change Physician Podcast with our returning guest, Dr. Corey Fawcett, who is the Financial Success MD. You can go to financialsuccessmd.com and see all of his books that I would recommend for you all. As always, if you have any questions and you want to talk, contact me directly, you can contact me at drkevin at thechangephysician.com. And until next time, stay well. Take care. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.